Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would lead us during this time, wherever we're coming from, whatever our questions are, whatever areas of skepticism that we entertain, uh, and that is true for those who may be new here, may be back here unexpectedly, or may be here each and every week. We all have moments where we doubt uh, the veracity of your resurrection and of all that that entails. And I pray that whatever our reasons for our disbelief, I pray that you would move into our lives, that you would move into our hearts and into our minds. Lord, help us to believe and help our unbelief. Lord, if we are here this morning with hurts, with pain, with loneliness, I pray that there would be something significant about the resurrection that would connect with us in a visceral way. Lord, I pray that if we are here and we are going through some great anguish, some great trial, and perhaps we are here hoping as a last resort that the church might have something to say, I pray that you would speak through all of the elements of this worship service and through my voice now. Lord, as we consider this passage, I pray that you would take a step towards us, that you would come alive to us again and be present in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Paradoxes are a a part of everyday life. Think about love-hate relationships. They're a part of science. We think of light as a particle and as a wave at the very same time. And paradoxes are very prominent in religion. We think of the Trinity. We think of Jesus as both fully man and fully God at the same time. John Stewart says there's paradoxes in religion. He says, religion gives people hope in a world torn apart by religion. That one kind of stinks. But paradoxes talk about truth in ways that helps us to get to the bottom a little bit more fully. Maybe a cynical view of paradox would be uh, saying that speaking in paradox is lazy. Just say what you mean. Say it clearly. Have the honesty to say what you really want to say. Or it could be that there are things in our world, things in our experience that language can't quite keep up with, that we need poets, we need paradox to help us express something that is very true, but we have to keep thinking about it perhaps realizing that the pursuit of truth isn't necessarily resolving the tension, resolving paradox, but plumbing its depths more fully. The Welsh poet Henry Vaughan said in the 1600s, there is in God, in some way, a deep but dazzling darkness. A deep but dazzling darkness. The modern theologian Rowan Williams reflects upon this, and he says, God is the light of the world, in His Son, Jesus. Yet, that interruption, that light cutting through our darkness is not a comfortable clearing up of problems and smoothing out our difficulties and upsets. On the contrary, it brings a kind of vertigo. It may make me a stranger to myself, to everything I have ever taken for granted. I have to find a new way of knowing myself, of identifying myself, of uttering myself, talking of myself, imagining myself. In short, when God's light breaks on my darkness, the first thing I know is that I don't know everything. When we get to the events of Good Friday and of Easter, we stumble upon some enormous paradoxes that empty out our confidence that our knowing is total. 
God on a cross. God dying for humanity. God showing up in the world, not showing power, and, but instead weakness and death. God trampling down death by death and then resurrection. I want us to reflect just on verse 15 and maybe a little bit of 17 that Eric read for us. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We see in this moment of Easter of putting together of things that we intentionally separate, that is, darkness and joy, and the pulling apart of things that seem inseparable, that is, life and death. And I'll say that a few more times, so don't worry if you didn't get it all. First of all, looking at darkness and joy. In His death and in His resurrection, Jesus brings together two things that we very carefully and very intentionally keep separate, darkness and joy. We tend to look for joy in the absence of darkness, in the cessation of pain. But the paradox of Jesus is that He finds joy in the midst of utter darkness. Jesus tells us that He offers us access to the Father, not in some mystical way. He does not simply talk about this, but He enacts it. He provides the way, the direct physical link. His own compassion and service and death is that physical link to the person of God. He fleshes out the mercy and compassion of God. And He does so, and this is remarkable, He does so realizing, it seems, from the gospel accounts that He has greater and greater clarity as He moves toward Passion Week, what it will mean for him to show God's mercy. It will cost him his life, and it will cost him an excruciating death. And Jesus goes to this death, not caught up in a surprising set of events that are outside of his control, and he doesn't go towards this event just with sort of a stoic resignation. He sees the cross in all of its monstrosity coming toward him, and he stays the course. Our passage tells us that his death was real. It was public. It was verifiable, as was his resurrection. Paul says he died for them. And only a few decades after the events, he says, and Jesus was raised again for them, for us. This nonviolent rabbi who comes healing, who comes caring for the poor and the outcast. He really did carry and then get nailed to the cross. Historically, really happened an event of utter darkness that the Bible struggles to describe. But there's another element present in the midst of this other utter darkness. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus did this for the joy that was set before him. He kept going. He kept pushing toward Jerusalem because he believed in grace. He kept pushing ahead because he believed in giving grace to you and to me, to making space 
for you in God's family. And it made him deliriously happy in the midst of darkness, in the midst of agony. In Gethsemane, again, they're struggling with language. He's sweating blood. It's the depth of the agony. And he says yes to the death that he dreads because of you. He endures the nightmare so that he will not in any way obscure God's mercy. The only way that we endure something terrible is when we know that there's something on the other side of suffering that is better than the pain is bad. For Jesus, that thing was you. You were the joy at the center of his heart that made the cross worth enduring. You were the thing that was greater than the pain was bad. Consider that this morning. He died for them, for us, and was raised again. You see, the darkness, paradoxically, is the pathway to life and to light. Because the story didn't end with the darkness of Good Friday, but the story ends and then begins again and resets and recapitulates at Easter. Good Friday would not be good without Easter, and Easter wouldn't be joyful without the darkness of Good Friday. We see in this moment, that is the cross, of putting together things that we intentionally separate, darkness and joy. And we see the putting together of things that we almost always cannot imagine being separate. That is life and death, pulling apart those things. We find joy in the cessation of difficulty, in the cessation of darkness. But Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' death and resurrection puts these together And it breaks apart the two things that we can't imagine being separated, life and death. Let's talk about that. Because what Jesus comes saying and comes telling us is not just some spiritual insight. I have a a word from God that I want you to know about it. He has words. He does teach. But he also acts out God's mercy. He mounts the cross and says that this is what God is like. This is the character of God. He embodies God's character and acts out an unconditional gift at incalculable cost. And Paul tells us here that human limitations because of the life and death of Jesus become utterly irrelevant. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. Jesus, you see, is separating those strong links that hold together life and death, and he is pulling them apart once and for all. The empty tomb, you see, is a sign not only that the life of Jesus is over, but that not over, but that neither is yours. No matter what extremity, no matter what pain, no matter what difficulty you are enduring, Jesus is the one that makes God's presence known in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your suffering and dying. He brings life where there is death. 
Tony Campolo, who is a pastor and a professor, he tells a story of attending an African-American funeral who, for a friend of his. His name was Clarence. And the pastor talked about the resurrection in beautiful terms, and he had everyone thrilled about this idea of the resurrection in the midst of what was a very dark event, the death of a friend. And the pastor came down from the pulpit, and he hugged on the family, and he personally comforted the family and gave them words of the gospel. And then for the last 20 minutes of the sermon, he actually preached to the open casket. And he yelled at the corpse, Clarence, Clarence, there were so many things that we should have told you and we never said to you. You got away too fast, Clarence. He went down a litany of the beautiful things that Clarence had done for people. And when he finished, he said, that's it, Clarence. There's nothing more to say except good night. Good night, Clarence. And he grabbed the lid of the casket and he slammed it shut. And he says, good night, Clarence. And this boom went across the congregation. Everyone was just shocked. How irreverent. But as he lifted his head, the preacher lifted his head, and everyone noticed that he had a great big smile on his face. And he said, good night, Clarence, because I know, I know that God is going to give you a good morning. And the choir stood immediately as he said this and started singing, On that great morning, we shall rise, we shall rise. And everyone, very much unlike in churches like ours, were dancing in the aisles and hugging each other and telling each other, He is risen. And it was just almost apocalyptic. There is a place for God now in the midst of all of our suffering because we have seen God abiding in the squalor and the humiliation of God's, of Jesus' execution. The inexhaustible life of God meets death and it eats it up. It exhausts it once and for all. Death, you see, has always been connected, inextricably linked with life, inseparable from life, limiting life. But on Easter, God sets the limits on death. And He says, you can only go this far. Death is still real, but His resurrection is unwinding it and putting death to death. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing truly new in our world, that as we go through life, we constantly encounter things that have been repeated for generations and centuries. There's nothing new under the sun, he says. But he says there is something new in the world that doesn't come from underneath the sun. And it's the work of God. That He is the only true escape from the downward pull of history. The only real alternative to the facts of life and of death that he breaks in in the person of Jesus and says, there is in fact something new, but it's not from under the sun. It's from all eternity, expressing the love and compassion of God in the passion of Jesus. We see in these moments of Good Friday and of Easter, the putting together of things that we intentionally separate, that is darkness and joy, and the pulling apart of things that seem inseparable, that is life and death. So how do we walk away with this? 
reflecting upon that, what are some takeaways that we can take into everyday life as we re-enter after this season of Lent? Well, first of all, for those who are a part of in town, for those who are part of any church that you you talk about yourself as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, with Him we pass from death to life so that, as Paul said, we can begin to die for the world. There's a so that, that we are to be instruments and ambassadors of reconciliation. Jesus dies for us, and we pass from death to life so that we can begin to die for the life of the world. The resurrection certainly has very personal and individual implications for all of us. You are included if you are in Christ. You are in Him, in His death and resurrection. But we're called to think about this less as sort of a deposit into our personal savings account that we get to benefit from just individually, and more like a donation to this movement that you're a part of, a donation to the church that you are a part of. His resurrection isn't simply a personal asset, but it's a communal resource. As He brought life where there is death in our lives, this is now our mission for others, to bring life where there is death and dying in this congregation and outside of it. You see, He dies for you, but Paul tells us that He dies for the life of the world. And if you are in Him, you are now in His mission. You are called to give of your life so that others can live. Now, secondly, maybe you're here with others. You've been invited Or maybe you're here as sort of a religious hangover from your previous days in the church, and that's not meant to say anything judgmentally about it. Portland is a a town of religious refugees, and I understand that. And it's understandable to have difficulty with this idea of resurrection, that this is the thing on which the church stands or falls. Easter is an enormous claim. And we're perhaps skeptical of ancient testimony. Can we really believe that Jesus rose again based upon the testimony of these ancient pre-modern people? But don't we believe so many things based upon the testimony of others? I was a history major in college, and as you read these things, most of them are not primary sources. We are believing as true and debating the things that actually happened based upon the testimony of other people who lived hundreds of years before us. And we say, without a doubt, these things happen. Oftentimes, not even eyewitness accounts, but just things that were passed down orally that eventually got written down that we say, yes, that person wrote this. This happened as it says. And we take that with perfect uh, belief. This is how we do history. And this is the testimony that we have of Jesus, both of His crucifixion and of His resurrection. But it's interesting, isn't it, that few of us doubt the crucifixion as a historical event, even though the historical evidence is pretty much the same for the crucifixion and the resurrection. We believe one and we doubt the others. I would say to you, of course it's difficult to believe. But if what is claimed to be the central event 
in the life of God's intervention in the world isn't a bit fantastical, why should we bother? If it doesn't make us shake our heads at times, could it really be the central event of God intervening in the world? And you see, a lot of our objections, I think if we're honest, have nothing to do with us being modern, scientific, reasonable, critical people. If the resurrection is true, it's a cataclysmic truth. It means that we're not in control of our lives as we once thought. It means we're not in control of time. We're not in control of the future. And nobody wants to hear that. And so we set up a lot of these elaborate defense systems of why it can't be true, really because we don't want it to be true. It messes up our lives. It's a cataclysmic truth, if it's true at all. So as you leave here this morning, even if you leave still skeptical, I encourage you, I challenge you to ask, what if it were true? How would it change your life? And this is a question for all of us whether or not we come in here skeptical or not. Could there be anything more unsettling, more consequential, more beautiful than God intervening in the world in the life of His Son, giving up His life, not subjugating people by force and coercing them, but inviting them into relationship at His own cost? Could there be anything more cataclysmic, more consequential, more beautiful And then finally, it would have been good enough news that Jesus rose from the dead. But the good news is that He actually rose for us, that He actually rose for humanity, that He actually rose for you and I. And think about this for a moment. Nobody actually saw Jesus rise from the dead. The gospel writers tell us that there was no one there when the stone was rolled away. We have to think about why is that? No one actually saw Jesus rise from the dead immediately, but they saw him afterward. They don't appear to Jesus, but Jesus chooses to appear to them. The proof of the resurrection isn't simply the empty tomb, but it's the presence of Jesus to his followers. It's that he shows up in their lives immediately following The women come to the tomb and he says, go tell the disciples that I am alive. His followers thought it was over between them and God. They had put all their hope into this last-ditch Messiah, and he had failed. He had failed them according to their thinking. But then on Easter, he comes back. He comes back to the very ones who had forsaken him, who had betrayed him, and had crucified him. He came back to us. The proof is not the fact of the empty tomb. The fact, the proof is that he is present to his disciples, that he is present in your life and in my life. And one way or another, one way or another, you are here because the risen Christ sought you out. You are here because the risen Christ wants relationship with you. He sought you. He met you. He called you. And like it or not, He commandeered you. He commandeered you into His mission and into His purposes. But the promise is that 
because he is present, that you are not alone in this world of death and of dying. As you encounter the worst that life offers, as you are stuck in what seems to be unresolvable relational conflict, as you read the newspaper, look online, and you read of the terrible events in our world, as you encounter personally death yourself or of a loved one, you are not alone. Jesus rises from the tomb to be present. He doesn't rise and immediately go to heaven. He rises and then he goes and has fellowship with his people. He went through the horror and the monstrosity of the cross to bring life where there is death. In the Bible, we see over and over that it gets dark and then it gets very dark and then Jesus shows up. There is in his story a very deep but very dazzling darkness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in some way that in this the realization of the resurrection and how it took place, that it would give us strength and resolve to be able to sit patiently when life is not going as we think. Lord, I pray that we would see you not only in the the wonderful, momentous events of life, but also in those things that we see as perhaps catastrophic in the things and places where we are hurting and loved ones are hurting. I pray that we would see you moving into our lives in a different way. And I pray that we would look for flags of of resurrection. We look for signs that you are with us in the midst of our pain. Father, I pray that you would make the resurrection to be more and more real to us as individuals, as families, and as a congregation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, that 